Hello, I am Olalikon Adekola, a senior lecturer in geography at York St. John University. I present to you this month's Conversation in Social Justice podcast brought to you by the Institute for Social Justice at York St. John University. We will be discussing on the title Youth Education and Environmental Activism, and I'll be discussing with Dr. Salamatu Jida Fada. Dr. Salamatu is a conservation scientist, educator, and mentor. She has mentored hundreds of youths with an interest in global environmental governance. Salamatu is a lecturer in the Department of Geography, University of Jos in Nigeria, and she is also an external lecturer at the School of Natural Sciences, Bangor University. Our research focuses on ecology and social safeguard, and she adopts interdisciplinary approaches to understand access, changes, and threats to conservation and general environmental issues. She has been working with local communities across Africa to protect the dwindling elephant population. Salamatu is the director of the North Wales Africa Society and oversees the Bangor Africa Caribbean Center. Welcome Salamatu and thank you very much for joining us today. Can we just start? Can I ask by asking you to begin by telling our audience a little bit about the invaluable uh, education and conservation work that you have been doing, that you've done in the past, and the ones that you're currently undertaking? I would say I have put in about 20 years in education and conservation work, and now community development. I started my early years as a lecturer at the University of Jos, which then brought me to the UK to do a PhD and then did a postdoc. In these years, I have taught courses related to conservation, um, biogeography, and um, research methods. When I came to Bangor, I still enrolled on the higher education course for teachers. I qualified as um, an associate fellow of the Higher Education Academy in the UK. I have done a lot of conservation work, starting from the classroom and teaching to practical conservation work on the field in the UK here and back in Nigeria. So I have been engaging and very much interested. I have been engaged with um, following and researching on elephant population and hippo populations, especially the ones in Dadinkowa in Gombe State. The elephant population, I was particularly concerned about the elephant populations in Yankari Game Reserve, which has the highest elephant numbers in Nigeria. And it's also very important population for West Africa. But now I am interested in the whole populations of elephants, whether they are savanna or forest, because IUCN just reported last year, March, that both populations are at risk. So I am, you know, interested in both. In Wales, I started as um, a student 
Greener Gwyneth volunteer. So I was a leader of Greener Gwyneth volunteer of the student union. And we led, you know, students, undergrad, master's students, PhD students that were interested in conservation to do, to embark on different conservation work and has exposed me then to removing some of the invasives from Snowdonia National Park and also guiding and monitoring different uh, nature reserves in Wales. So both in classroom and outside of classroom, I have been engaged with conservation work and educating. Educating, I see as part of my life. So in classroom and outside of classroom, I educate as much as, in fact, I call myself an educator. I always want to teach. I want to correct. I want to guide. Thank you very much for that. And I believe we'll be able to delve a bit into some of the education work you do and the way you do that together with youth and mentor them. We'll be able to get a bit into that. Just to pick up on uh, some of the things that you've said earlier, can you tell us a bit about some of the social justice related issues that you probably have come across within your conservation work, the research and the projects that you've done that relates to conservation? Are there social justice related issues that you've come across in those projects? Absolutely. I'll give you an example. I was invited by the Bauchi State Government in um, Nigeria to help update a management plan in 2015. And I said, okay, conservation is not done now, like you are used to. So it's not top bottom approach I use, not at all. I invite the people this plan is made for to be on the table and to be partners. So we have to hear them out. I am tired of a cyclical approach of keeping people out of nature areas and putting some laws that are not realistic because these people end up breaking the laws and you arrest them, you take them to prison. Sometimes you find them and they go back home. And when they are hungry, they come back again to do the same reoffend. It's not working. It's cyclical. So we are going to do something different. We're going to talk with these people and hear them out. And so the governor then saw reason with what I said. And he said, okay, you go ahead. So they engaged me. And what I did was to go to all about 18 local communities that were at least five kilometers from the border of Yankari Game Reserve in Nigeria. I visited these communities. I sat down with the leaders, with the people, and engaged them with women, with youth, engaged them. And we did the first round of just visiting them to say, oh, this is who we are. We are going to be working with you for two years. And then we now came back. I invited a social ecologist from Mexico, Dr. Tueni. She came, we sat down, and we were able to do workshops to train the social communities and then continue the development of that management plan. But what happened was when we were visiting the communities, it now became very glaring, their needs. And then I saw that it is actually not realistic to just focus 
on just conservation bothered about elephants and lions and uh, hippos and uh, antelopes and then these people are at the bottom their livelihoods are threatened so i said no in fact i went to karugu is one of the 18 communities i visited and i saw that their primary school had collapsed down to the ground completely and it was even a threat standing there it was supposed to be a three block of classrooms and it, it had collapsed and they said doctor help us help us please we don't have our children don't have where to go to school and so what i did was i tried to engage the government to help them but of course the government have their agenda and they have their own pressures so they didn't act immediately and when my contract finished i had the burden all through when my contract finished, I came back and decided to establish an NGO called Telefi UK. I am using that platform to intervene in that community. And as of today, I can tell you, we have got funding and we have been able to build a school, a block of three classrooms. We have been able to provide solar panels in the community. We are now working with the British Nigeria Education Trust to provide rainwater. So it's a scheme that they will sponsor it to help provide water for that community. And we keep engaging them. We have been able to uh, do some training for the teachers and some of the pupils in mathematics last year. We took them to Alkaleri local government we just use them as a pilot and now we are developing a more sustainable workshop so this is an example of how my work has sort of is focusing is becoming more and more focused on social justice so i'm not doing conservation alone for wildlife but it's for people and wildlife at the same time i believe that you can have a win-win for both Thank you very much for that. I think it's quite interesting to hear how uh, conservation is not only about the environmental side of things, but also the sort of focus on the social. And it was interesting when you talked about the sort of community, the women, the gender dimension, the issues around the youth. I believe we'll delve a bit later into the youth side. I just want to check with you, are there any challenges that you face, you know, when you try to bring this social side, this social dimension, of conservation or the importance of looking at the social side into your work. So are there opposition, are there challenges you face either from the local community or from the governance side? And how do you manage those sort of uh, challenges, if there are any? Yes, yes, your answer is a big yes. And I can tell you the most challenge I encountered surprisingly came from conservation professionals and NGOs. It is funny that uh, people actually feel that conservation can be done without having a human face. I don't know in what, in what world that a child that cannot feed, cannot go to school, cannot have medical attention when he needs it, cannot have those basic things in life is not an important aspect of 
a conservation intervention. I don't, I, I can't get it around my head. But there are many conservation NGOs, surprisingly, some of them international, you know, that know that we believe should know better. They have their interventions, they have their strategies that does not include social safeguards at all. And when I started, the strategies they use, some of them, is okay, this is the big, bigger picture. For the local communities, we are going to send a vehicle to get the children from school, uh, from the primary school, to come and uh, we take them for viewing. So you, they go and see wildlife and we give them some rice. We probably give them t-shirts and uh, we take them back home. And that one off thing, you will be shocked to see it on all social media as something that this organization or that organization is doing in, as a way of intervention. And I feel that it is really degrading and insulting to the people for you to use them because I feel they are being used. Just put t-shirts on the children and take a picture and ethically is wrong because you're promoting your NGO, but and in the real sense, there is no benefit for these people. So most of the time, the people that I had head-on collusion, sort of to say, are conservation NGOs. They don't believe that our strategy would work. In fact, I have sold to some of them that, okay, let's start with co-management. Let's start with co-management. I don't like the top bottom thing. Let us start with co-management. The government and the people manage these government reserves together, but they're not interested in that. They believe what they know is good for everyone. No co-production in, in design or implementation or anything. So they bring whatever they bring and agree on, and you know they sort of put it on the table as this, we are helping you. And I'm tired of this uh, slave master relationship. I don't like it. I, I am big on AIDS. I don't like hearing AIDS. I don't, I don't like it. I believe that both partners can benefit. Let us be partners. We both can benefit. Let it be mutual benefit and everybody can win. But nothing like what I have thought of for you is good for you and is being developed without you in the center. It doesn't work. So uh, yes, I have had challenges with government because of the bureaucracy definitely is expected, especially in Africa. And then of course, logistic challenges, maybe of bad roads or weather conditions and things like that. But the most challenges I've had in terms of social justice is related to conservation NGOs and practitioners. Thank you very much. A lot of insight there. I mean, one of the key things you've highlighted is the fact that if we have to ensure a socially just approach to conservation or managing environmental resources, it has to be through partnership. It doesn't necessarily need to be one side dominating over the other. Thank you very much for that.
thank you very much for sharing your thoughts around the project that you do with conservation, especially in Nigeria. Uh, next, I want us to look at some of the work that you do regarding uh, education and climate activism. And the question is just to explore your work with the youth and some of the challenges that the youth face when it comes to contributing to uh, redressing some of the negative impacts of climate change. So you, that could be based on your work in Nigeria and some of the work you do with climate activists, uh, both in Wales and on the African continent. Uh, the second part to that question, if I can put that across as well, is what do you think universities like ours, what can they be doing to help youth to contribute best to addressing some of the challenges of climate change? So I'm going to start with um, education and then leading to climate activism and uh, being a mentor to young African climate activists. So which education I have experience of not only reading education myself and being a lecturer for many years, but I have been on the board of Adult Learning Wales. This is the third year running. In August, it will, we will make it three years. And being on the board has exposed me to a lot of the ways the learners behave and how they interact. So I have the experience of actually being able to guide adult learners. Now, the youth, how when you define youth, <laughs> um, the youth of Africa and the youth in Europe, I think is a bit different. There are different ways you can define what youth is. Some people would tell you from maybe 14 to 25, some people would say it's just 16 to 24. It, it varies. The youth I have been dealing with from teaching undergraduates to actually having mature learners under my care and teaching and mentorship, I have engaged with them in various forms because what it is is all of them come to the table with different issues because of their lived experiences. The climate activists, um, actually, I didn't know them from anywhere. Somebody recommended that they talked with me. So they have organized themselves and needed some sort of guidance. And I was asked to speak with them. It was supposed to be a one-off arrangement. But when I talked with them and guided them, I realized that they asked me, can this be a formal arrangement? So let's open a WhatsApp group and have regular meetings and things like that. And we began to engage in that way to the point that, you know, building up to COP26, I was able to help some of them to attend COP26. And that also happened to be the opportunity I have serving on the, the advisory committee of Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, Comrie, I was able to get them forms, youth forms sent to them and they filled and got sponsorship 
to attend COP26 in Glasgow. Now, there are many challenges that our youth face, especially, I would say, climate activists in the global south. And these challenges uh, sometimes have, uh, are not things that you can easily fix. There are things you can do and there are things that you cannot do. For example, most of the African governments, or I would say generally, there is the authoritarian regime in Africa, to a large extent disregarded. So culturally, where youth talk, speak, and speak their minds sort of, is seen as being rude or coming across as, oh, where are you coming from? We don't do that here. So you are expected, even in the family structure, that your father and your mother know it all. So when a youth begin to speak out his mind and begin to challenge things at serious levels, like the government level, it becomes a challenge. I, would, I can tell you that I have a youth now, a mentee, that had to flee from Congo and now lives in Malawi because his life is being threatened just because of activism. And now I'm getting a colleague of mine that we, we met in, the, in Europe here, I'm getting her to take care of him so that he is not, at least he has a form of livelihood and, and, and things like that. So there is that. That is the top issue of everybody's telling you, shut up. We do, culturally, we don't do things here. Secondly, there are the issues of lack. So the funds to enable and to propel this youth to do the things they want to do are not there. So at the grassroots, most of them want to, they have their interventions. They know the problems and they want to fix the problems. Some of them have written proposals and sent to me very strong ones. But again, they have to compete with others to get funding. And most of the funding comes from the global north. And it's not all the time that global north trust that this youth will use the money accordingly, in quotes, you know? So there is pressure of them actually needing the money the funds to be able to intervene in their communities. And then because other people have done wrong in the past, there is a history of lack of uh, prudence and mismanagement and looting, it is affecting this youth. And even when they get the monies, they need also permissions and consent. And this consent comes from where? From the big guys, they begin to ask them, where, where did you get the money? Who are you working for? You know, we don't trust you. And start putting all these negative things in this youth. So there is that, <laughs> that case. The third one is one of the youths I'm mentoring right now on African activism in climate actually said, I've never met anybody like you. You're so factual. You're so open. You don't hide anything. You tell us the truth. Many people just take advantage of us. There is no mentorship. I'm not saying that I'm the best mentor. No, 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 not at all. There is the lack of genuine mentorship. People that will guide this youth in the right direction. 
and not only guide them, also use your influence to open doors for them. So for example, I'm here in Wales, and if I recommend this youth to RSPB, for example, North Wales Wildlife Trust, and other NGOs, they are able to believe that these guys are genuine. And then I'm also able to guide them. So there are quite a few things. <laughs> I can go on and on, but they, they suffer a lot because their challenges are unending. So there's a second part of the question where you said, what can the universities do for them? Now, if I'm talking about the guys in the global south, so the girls and boys, most of them are actually ready to further their education, some of them to start their education. And if they can get scholarships, even if they are not full scholarships, part scholarships, you know, they are hardworking. Some of them to farm, you know, some of them, they engage in all different kinds of businesses, you know, at the local level, the lower level, and come and be better educated and also have the opportunities for proper partnerships so that their voices can be heard. The other thing that you can do, for example, I'm talking to you from University of York or your institute directly, you can have the youth that I mentor and other people mentor as an extension of your institute. So we can be affiliated with you, which then makes us look genuine to some people that will ordinarily not believe or trust what we're doing. You see, and in doing that, the doors open for this youth to enable them carry out their work effectively and sustainably. And it can go on and on. The resources you have of materials, so books, newsletters, library materials, they all can use them. They don't have to be physically here in Europe. We can send it to them. We, I have sent 10 boxes of books to a university in northern Nigeria two years ago or three years ago. All they did was paying for the shipment. But I got these 10 boxes of books over the years and sent to them. As I'm talking to you, I've already packaged books and some toys and whatever and sending to Cargo, that community I told you that we build a school, I'm sending there to help the children have books and resources. So we can send them physical uh, materials as well as online materials. I can download and find a way to send to them. So there's so many ways we can engage with institutions, with uh, other NGOs, with, uh, with the governments even of the UK. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Salamatu. Quite a lot you've said there, um, but I think a lot about the mentorship work you've done and also on COP26, but I'll come back to the issue of COP26 later on. I just want to check, have you seen any sort of issues arising from working with diaspora youth um, in the UK, especially in Northwest. I know you've talked about those within the African continent. Are there similar issues arising when uh, you work with youth within the UK, especially in North Wales? Are there youth groups also within 
this community sort of like working for climate change issues and your involvement in that as well? It is really different, you know, in Europe. When a youth shows interest in climate issues, that youth is projected in a way that you want to give them a voice. That is typically what is obtainable here. I can tell you that I am on the steering committee for Climate Comry, and um, we run campaigns. In fact, we run the campaign leading to COP26, gathering the Welsh voices and took to our Senate, which then took it to the meeting in um, Glasgow. And we set out to gather just 10,000 voices. We ended up with over 13,000 voices. And I can tell you that the youth amongst us, if you go to the website, you would see many. In fact, I think more than half of us, half of them on the, or half of us on the, as ambassadors are youth. And Poppy and her group, they have an organized group and it's impactful. They engage politicians, they engage partners, different partners that are relevant to the campaigns of climate change. They go to schools and engage schools at basic levels and universities. They, they are doing great jobs, you know, to raise the awareness. In fact, I remember that during the, the elections, some of them ran sessions to engage the politicians to actually explain how they can help us transit to a greener economy. They were youths. They, were, they interviewed them, grilled them. I attended several of the sessions and it was beautiful. And they did it with confidence. So we need to give the Global South that kind of platform that youth can actually engage the politicians and all the policymakers to say, this is what we are thinking. And to be realistic, is the youth that will feel the more the impact of climate change more than us. How much have we got to leave? So they know what they are talking about. Don't keep on doing what you're doing, carrying on with business as usual and causing problems to this world because you'll soon leave, <laughs> you'll soon check out and we're here and we're going to feel the impact more. So it is really, the difference is just too much. Look at what um, Greta Thunberg is doing and everybody is supporting her and she, she's not really saying anything different from what our youth are saying, you see, but she has been provided with the platform to be able to use her voice and use it strongly. Thank you very much. And on that note, I will delve a bit into COP26. And you talked really about the youth. And you did mention earlier that quite a number of youth, I think about five or six of them, came to Glasgow as a result of the mentorship that you were engaged with with them. I just want to check, in your own opinion, looking at COP26, do you think the outcome addressed key social justice issues for you? Uh, you see, when it comes to the big guys talking and taking decision, sometimes you just listen to them. 
I was big on just seeing whether the presence of the youth, no matter how few they were, would count. I think it was a good experience for them. And they have learned how to do things better in some way. But the decisions that have been taken and the outcomes of COP26 is something that I keep reflecting on because most of them are not realistic. It is easy for you to go and sit down and have a big meeting and come out with outcomes. The reality on ground is different. Now, Nigeria, for example, there is the big ambition of planting trees by the government. The reality of insecurity alone in Nigeria is not going to make it an easy tax to do. And I'm talking about Nigeria because I know that there are no-go areas now in Nigeria. I also know that there are places that if you, most of the travel anyway in the northern part of Nigeria is done by air, unless you can't afford it. And if you can't afford it, you sit still. Now, when you say that you want to go out and plant trees, and every day people are being kidnapped, people are being killed, who then would go out and plant the trees? Do you have robots that will carry out that tax? Or who will do it and plant the billion of trees that you're talking about? So talk is, is actually cheap, but the reality on ground is what strikes me as, okay, this is just gist. And I think the most powerful speech, I would say, I love David Attenborough and he, the realities he brings always to what is happening to, in connection to nature, you know, climate impacts on nature. But the most powerful speech was the one of the prime minister of Barbados, Nia. Wonderful speech. Our realities are different. We cannot, the global south, the difference between the global south and the global north is too wide. The impact is done by the guys in the global north. The impact is on the global south and is irreversible. So how much billions will you give to fix the problem that is there? So I think it is cheap to talk, but when you walk the talk, I would respect you. But if you cannot walk the talk, I think you should just keep quiet. So I think of my role, I would say, as usual, is not to condemn the big guys. They have done their talk, but to guide the youth. What can you do better? What can you do with what is on the table? What can you do with what is within your reach? I think that is more important to me than all these global meetings are important, but I think it's, um, it's, it's overrated based on what it realistically does afterwards. Great point you've made there, and which comes up also in some of my own research as well, that often when we discuss environmental challenges, we can fall into the 
error of coming up with solutions that does not reflect reality in of people that we are developing those policies or institutions for. So it's essential to look at what happens on the ground and how some of those policies or even technology that have been designed will be useful uh, in terms of solving the challenges on the ground. I mean, the issue and also the interlinkages between different challenges, like you did mention, conflict and the possibility of maybe planting trees. That's a big one. My last question would just be to go back to the youth engagement work that you do and environmental issues being mutually inclusive. I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but could you build further on that? How do you see working with youth or the challenges facing the youth either in the global south or the global north and also environmental issues and environmental challenges, both now and looking forward into the future? We have one planet, one. And whether you live in Antarctica, or you live in Australia, or you live in Africa, Madagascar, anywhere you live, there's just one planet, one Earth where there's life. The workforce is the youth. The youth engage with the environment in many ways. And the youth-led engagement can directly lead to social change directly. Now, the strategies would vary, of course, depending on local conditions. So different youth in different, we have talked about Wales and Africa, and how different they engage, and how the platforms are different. And so the strategies for work may be different would be different for both. Now, you talk about the youth in Africa engaging on environmental issues, activism. The strategy they may choose to use would probably have to do a lot with communication and social media engagement because that is a platform the youth actually use a lot. And that engagement platform can enable other people to see them and hear them out. It doesn't have to be their leaders. When we brought some of them, our youth, to Glasgow, it had nothing to do with um, the president of our countries, African countries, nothing to do with them. It was organizations in Europe that decided to engage this youth directly and brought them here. And they had that experience and learned a lot of strategies they can use to engage. And I am sure that within a short time, you will begin to see a change that they are going to cause, you know, a social change based on some of the strategies they have learned from here. So the youth continues to engage with the environment in various ways and is able to use his voice during using the social media and other platforms to create his own initiative and probably that will be impactful for his country or his community and things like that. 
I think that's great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I mean, listening to you sharing your experience from the work you've been doing with conservation in communities in the north of Nigeria and working with different governments, uh, working with NGOs, and also the work you're doing with youth across the continent. It does appear your work is quite very practical and community focused. And I guess it also speaks to your focus on ecology and safeguarding. So it's been brilliant, really, having this discussion with you, uh, Dr. Salamatu. Thank you very much for this opportunity that you've granted us. And I believe believe you've shared a, a lot of insight into issues around conservation, uh, uh, environmental activism, and youth. Thank you very much.